Today's episode is sponsored by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated, globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com. Safe by choice, not by chance, for all of your safety needs. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Happy Saturday morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. I'm so happy to have on the show today my dear friend, Jessica Vanderhoek. Thanks for being back again, my friend. Thank you for having me. It is awesome. It's a bit weird, though. I have uh, always have you in person, and now I, I got you online, but that's all right. Yeah, exactly. This will be our first non-person, in-person. It's a first. It's beautiful, uh-huh. but we got a lot to talk about, sister, um, starting with all the changes going on with, uh, with your gig. So you've moved barns and stables. Tell us about the new gig, about the new digs. Yeah, so I can't tell you who it's affiliated with, but the new digs are in Bowness, which is amazing. For those of you that don't live in Calgary, it's pretty much right in the central part of the city, which is unique because most people have no idea that there's 160 acres of horse property really in the middle of the city along the the river path. So it's quite, quite the thing when you actually pull in there and realize it's been there all along. You've just never realized it was there. So um, it's really quite neat, too, because there's a lot of wildlife right there. So if you're quiet and you're patient, there's couple of foxes that are on the property and there's a family of bald eagles and there's beavers and like all kinds of neat creatures to observe too and I kind of wonder like what do my horses think of all of this you know what do they think the first time they saw a beaver climb out of the river and you know what the hell is that that's what big gopher yeah (laughs) so it's it's a beautiful location and it's right in Calgary which makes it easily accessible and how have the horses been adjusting to the new location? How are they with that kind of change? Not good. <laughs> Some better than others. You know, our herd's an aging herd, right? So they like consistency. They like the sameness. And, and horses are like us, where change is quite disruptive for them. Um, the only difference is we get to have an explanation beforehand most of the time about why change is happening, not all the time. Whereas these guys just have to deal with the changes that we make for them. So the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of anxiety from some of our older guys because they just didn't know what was going on and what was happening. But I think it was helpful for them to see the same familiar faces and the same volunteers that come out and check on them. And, you know, knowing that we all came with them and all their friends are there with them, it it was good. It took a couple of weeks for all of them to settle down, but they did. Horses are just different from other animals in so many Mm -hmm. ways uh, in how they act, how they react, and our relationship with them. What do you think it is? Like, how would you describe the difference of our relationships with horses as opposed to our relationships with a cat or a dog or uh, any other creature? Um, I mean, I, I do think most animals are extremely emotional, emotionally intelligent, far more than we give them credit for. 
I think the interesting thing about horses is is their size along with their emotional intelligence because they could easily kill us if they wanted to. Like, they let us get on them and ride them. So there's a huge amount of trust that has to happen in that partnership so that we don't get hurt and they don't get hurt. But they allow us to do this with them. This is this is part of the relationship. So I think the the level of depth to those relationships and the level of trust is is what separates them from other animals. It's the fact that you are now moving with them. You know, you were on them. You were riding together. I think that's that's a different level of connection than you would have with other animals. Why do you think that? these great big giant beasts allow us to ride them and, and work with them? Um, because they know we need the help. <laughs> Straight up compassion. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people will say it was because we train them to, and they don't have a choice, you know? And that's, unfortunately for horses, that is, that is true. Man is very dominating in the way we deal with animals. But I think... In, in our program particularly, the reason the horses let us work with them is because they know that we need the help. You know, they know that we need it. They know they're doing a good job. So I feel like there's an intelligence there when it, when it comes to um, when it comes to how they operate with us. Now, I had the distinct privilege of going through your program. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Really, really enjoyed it. And I certainly had some key takeaways from it. What are some of the key takeaways that you hear most often and what are some of the key takeaways people tell you that have actually surprised you from going through the equine therapy program? Um, I think some of the, some of the big ones have been understanding the needs of another living being um, without really having to think much about it. People are really quickly will figure out what the horses need from them in order for their relationship to be successful and very rarely do people understand their own needs to be able to make their relationship with themselves and others successful. So that's usually a big aha moment for people because they can so easily see what the horses need. Uh, and compassion is another one that's really funny because people extend a lot of compassion to the horses when they're going through something that they're afraid. And the people in the program don't even think about it. But if you flip that around on them and say, well, are you like this with yourself navigating your healing journey, your healing obstacle course? And they're just like, well, no, you know what I mean? They believe being harder on themselves is the way to get through it. Whereas you can see very quickly with a horse, the harder you are on them, the more resistance you're going to get, the more fear you're going to instill. And it's the same thing for us, right? So those are really neat moments. And, and I think some of the conversations that the people that are in relationships have with their spouses can be really can be really transformational, you know, especially with the needs, right? I ask people to write down a list of their needs and, and to actually sit and talk with their families about those needs, you know. Um, yeah, I think those are some of the real key takeaways, the concept of ego, because it's so crucial in the healing experience to understand how your trauma brain works and and how trauma actually affects you on a soul level as well as on a brain level. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of any surprise moments, but I, (laughs) you know, I purposely instill these little bits of, of information into the program. And, and so I don't know that I've been surprised yet, but I've always been very 
it's been really amazing to watch people come to their own realizations for sure. Being a teacher and a facilitator in any group, on any subject matter, as you are teaching, as you are facilitating, people tend to have their own aha moments uh, um, where there's a a greater depth of understanding of something that you're yourself teaching. Um, Have there been moments like that for yourself where you're like, oh, I never looked at it that way with the horses, but now I hear myself saying it and yeah. Has there been a depth of understanding that's increased for you over the last few years? Yeah, especially when it comes to relationships, like partnerships, romantic relationships. There's definitely been parts in there um, where I have to go, you know what, Jessica, you actually need to practice what you preach in that, you know, where something just hits you on a deeper level where you understand, like, you know what, that's actually been a trigger for me, or that's been a block for me, or, you know, I'm telling them to, to, to try and communicate in a certain way, and I haven't been doing it, or... Even in the way that I emotionally regulate now, I think um, I think I'm a lot more conscious about how I do it. You know, we teach emotional regulation skills and actually implementing it. I mean, there's been several times in my vehicle on the way to somewhere or doing something that I'm like, you're not regulated right now, so pull over and take the time to do it. If you're asking other people to do this for themselves as self-care, you need to do this as well, you know? So it's definitely been reaffirming of a lot of things like if you're going to expect other people to do what you tell what you suggest then you need to do it yourself right yeah and it's uh it's funny sometimes when we get smacked in the face with the reality of that it's like oh because the old saying if you knew it you'd do it so it's one thing to be aware of of a concept that you should be doing it's another thing entirely to actually be practicing it on a regular basis. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's practice, but in order to practice it you have to be aware of it. And I think, you know, when we get to a certain point in our healing journey, we have a tendency to just sort of not be as conscious about things as we have been to get well and you have to go back to your practices. We, right? get, we get complacent because we think, I'm good, yes. I'm fine, I'm good. I'm and fine, then you I'm get, good. And then you get hit by a truck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and the thing is, you don't have to get hit by a truck. You can get hit by a, a rock. And, you know, the universe escalates in the way that it talks to us. And now I try and listen before it sends a truck, you know? <laughs> the um, f- For the people listening how can we explain to them how working with the horses increases your self-awareness? Um, well, I think starting with the physiology of the brain, because that's really what puts us in the state to be able to be self-aware. Um, what happens when we've experienced a lot of trauma is that we tend to live in our amygdalas, right? Our fight or flight center. And that's great for determining threats. It is not good for making decisions that are, complex it's not good for processing complex thoughts or emotions and you know we start secreting high levels of cortisol which can be very damaging to our bodies and so when we work with horses just similar to when we we have dogs around um we actually shift into our prefrontal cortex and into our frontal cortex where you actually can process complex thoughts and emotions and it takes you out of that fight or flight And it also allows the body to start releasing serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin, which are the hormones of acceptance and love and attachment and belonging. And um, the other thing that it does is it shifts us out of the part of our brain where all the chatter exists, that a lot of us that have trauma experience, the constant ticker tape of thoughts that are going. 
and it actually shifts us into the other part of our brain where we're just observing and experiencing things like we did, you know, when we were children seeing something for the first time. So in effect, what it does is it grows new neural pathways in the part of your brain where you experience things and effectively starves the trauma pathways that we build because when you've experienced trauma, you think about it. It's, it's impossible not to. And every time you think about it, you're laying down a pathway in your brain. And eventually the brain says, this is so important. We need to make this a physical structure. And so it'll myelinate it. And what tends to happen is we get caught on this little loop of trauma pathways where we're, you know, fearful and anxious about the future because what if it looks like the past? And then there's depression, sadness, grief, shame, all of those things about the past and we're never present. So we just sit on this shitty little loop, digging a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger rut that we just cannot get off of. And when you do something like working with horses, you have a new experience. It basically works like a little tow truck to go in and pull that car off the track for a little while and say, go have a break. Um, and then also when we are with horses, we, we all have uh, um, um, electromagnetic fields. And when we're with horses, we actually step into theirs and sync with theirs. So our blood pressure and pulse will drop because theirs is lower than ours. So physiologically, you're in a better state to be able to process things. And then horses are really amazing mirrors because they will always give the energy back to you that you're giving to them. And part of what happens to us when we have trauma is we give our energy away to everyone freely because we're not aware we're doing it, right? And so when you're with the horses, you can very clearly see where their energy is and you can very clearly see how your energy affects them because that's how horses communicate. Energy is the universal language. And so once you start becoming aware of how much energy you're giving away every time you have a a reaction or every time you have an interaction with somebody, you can start determining how much of that you actually give away. And that lends itself to the self-awareness. How am I actually behaving How am I actually navigating the world versus what I think I'm doing? Because the horses will tell you immediately if you're actually doing what you think you're doing. So let's talk about about how that works because I I can just hear the audience right now going, what the fuck are you talking about? How? And how how does this work? Well, um, so let's go to the the beginning here. Everything that you were describing in the first half of that was about mindfulness and meditation. So you can achieve the same thing through mindfulness and meditation practices. Uh, It's just more fun with a horse. (laughs) And you get an immediate visual representation. So how that immediate visual representation happens, uh, let's talk about the round pen and and, uh, working with the horses in the round pen with your energy, how that looks. Yeah, so horses will give us bodily cues to let us know where their energy is, right? So if a horse is feeling afraid or anxious or it feels like it's under threat, its head will be up, its ears will be pricked right up, its eyes will be big, you'll be able to see the whites of his eyes, nostrils will be flaring, and they'll be moving in sort of short, choppy movements and and changing direction looking for the threat. And so what I say to people is look at your horse's energy on a scale of 1 to 10, good, bad, or otherwise. Look at your energy on a scale of 1 to 10, good, bad, or otherwise. And this is a really great, simple scale for people to to remember to go, okay. So I let them sit with that for a bit, and then I tell them your energy and your horse's energy need cannot exceed 10. 
So if your horse is showing up with an energy of six out of 10, then you need to dial yours back down to a four. And if you can't, and you're say a seven out of 10 and your horse is a seven out of 10, you have a horse running around the round pen in a state of panic, not listening to any of the cues. So when you ask that horse to slow down by what I say to people is visualize you have an energy center in your, where your umbilical cord would have been, where your belly button is, and that that is a direct connection to your horse's belly button. And so picture this sort of beam of light that you're using to communicate with them. And if you visualize pulling your energy in, that beam of light weakens, the, the connection isn't as intense. And if you imagine increasing almost like a care bear stare right you can increase your energy and the amount of energy you're sending to them which will speed them up and this is a thing that actually happens even if it sounds a bit crazy people think it's woo woo and but they because they don't understand and that's the power of it because you have to experience it you have to experience it people don't understand that they do in fact have a bioelectric field around them and that that bioelectric field does in fact influence and affect those around them and Uh that you can control it you can control the intensity the size of it uh, and how it interacts with others and we see this uh, practically with the horse and and I, i could feel it jess when, yeah, you can. Like when you're you can, connected, you feel it. You can actually feel the connection. And I could feel myself, and, and you saw it, uh, getting the horse um, based. Uh, and first, my throttle was up too high. I thought I was at a four, but I was at an eight. So that horse is a bucking. You know? Running around, right? Yeah. Not listening to you. Which was the mirror that we're talking about reflecting yeah. uh, our, our own inner state. So I'm like, okay, apparently I got my foot on the gas, wasn't aware of it. Bring it down. And when yeah. I brought it down, the horse slowed down just by um, uh, consciously bringing down my own bioelectric field. And I was able to get that horse to walk, canter, and mm-hmm. full-on gallop. Uh, and when I wanted it to, to, to slow down, and this is without touching it. This is just using yeah. my, my energy. No physical aids. This is just energy. This is just energy going around and around pen. And, it would, yeah. and I can get it to stop. And anywhere I would walk, I could walk in a figure eight, I could do whatever I want. And because I have that connection, the horse would follow me. And yeah. and which is a duplicatable thing. It wasn't just me. We were all able to do it to varying degrees based on our own personal state of mindfulness. Uh, apparently, I, I was pretty mindful that day because it was really working. And it was the coolest thing ever. It is. It's so neat that a 1,200-pound animal is willingly choosing to follow you. And I want people to know these are not things I train my horses to do. These are not <laughs> tricks that we train them to do. Well, how could they you? You're not touching liberty. them. What's that? You, you couldn't if you wanted to. You, you're not touching them. You're not touching them. There's no halter on them. There's no lead rope. They are choosing to follow you or not follow you. And if they don't follow you, what that tells you is, you know what? We need more time to develop a connection. We're still not communicating to the extent where they trust me to follow me, to do it willingly. So we just have to spend a bit more time because I'll tell you, Mark, not not every horse follows every person. Yeah. You know, some of them are just like, yeah, okay, we're done. We're done running around in a circle. Perfect. And people um, are, are always hoping, like everybody wants the connection, whether they realize it or not. And when they don't have yeah. the connection, they're upset. Yeah. Upset, frustrated, you know, because uh, the lack of connection is the pain of PTSD. Exactly. We're just not aware of it, that that's what hurts. It's the disconnection. Yeah. 
Well, and you know, it's amazing. I think when you asked about some aha moments where it's fun to see um, people have a reaction, one of the biggest lessons that they teach us is the very first day when I introduced the herd to everybody, because we don't actually ride until the end of the program. And my very first day is to, to introduce the herd and herd dynamics. And most of the people that have come through the program are men, which is a real honor for us to be able to hold space for men. Like I will say that. And I will say that I'm very, um, I'm so happy that men are finally doing something about their mental health. No, I shouldn't say finally, but you know, it feels like finally. Right. And, um, when they see, so my herd's all geldings, all, all males. And so when they see them grooming each other and they see them looking after each other as men, right? That they make sure that the other one's eaten, that they make sure that if the other one has an itchy back, that it's scratched, that they, they take turns grooming each other and looking after each other. And that if one of them perceives a threat and takes off running, the rest aren't standing there waiting to shame them, right? The rest of them are like, oh yeah, man, are you okay? What, what scared you? What do you need? Right? And they're all dudes and they're all giant horses, and there is zero shame in the fact that they look after each other. And when I explain that to people, do you think they shame each other for being afraid in this situation? No, because that's how they stay alive. Yeah, okay. And then they help yes. each other co-regulate. They help each other co-regulate. Yeah. And I tell people, we were never meant to heal in isolation. We were always meant to heal as a herd. So here you have a group of seven dudes, essentially, in, in, a, in a herd. They don't shame each other when they get afraid. They don't shame each other when they're in distress. They, they look after each other. So if it doesn't bother them, why does it bother us so much? You know, And there's lots of answers to that question. But it's a real like, oh, huh, yeah, you know? It's beautiful work, and I'm so grateful. I hope I hope I get to do it again. And uh, you're working on like it's always been the same six sessions, uh, or a variation of that uh, in the last twelve years of your operation. Now you're working on a part two or an advanced level, are you? Yeah. So actually, so the charity's been running for twelve years. The PTSD program was developed about three years ago. Oh, okay. So the program, the level that we've been running has been running now for the full year, uh, with the exception of the pilot program that we ran a couple years ago before we got funding. So level two is going to be a deeper dive into the spirituality of healing, because the thing that a lot of people don't understand <laughs> is that healing is a psycho-spiritual event, and that most people have quite a spiritual awakening as they're going through the healing process. And this has nothing to do with religion. This is just the process of healing. And so I hear the hesitation in your voice in trying to describe this. And I have, I, the, I, I have the same hesitation because I don't want people to shoot themselves in the foot by dismissing it as woo woo exactly. because it fucking isn't. You know, wow. so uh, what I'm going to ask at this point w with the audience is just take a breath, uh, <laughs> open your mind just a little, because uh, yeah. um, it, it is so hard to grasp it until you've experienced it firsthand, but we're not talking woo-woo. There was probably no. a scientific way to to frame this, you know, um, with atoms and all kinds of science, but... Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff, but for this point forward, just 
just take a breath and and say maybe is all I ask because yeah. we're talking real stuff. I'm sorry. Sorry for interrupting. I just no, uh, no, no. I, I could I could sense it off you because I was feeling the same thing. Well, because you know you think about your audience, right? And you're telling you know some hardened you know especially <laughs> men, right? It's, yeah. It, the funny thing is, though, when I talk about the fact that PTSD is a soul injury in origin and not a brain injury in origin, because it, it affects our sense of self, it affects our moral compass. Like these are moral injuries first that affect us, right? And I've talked with you about that in other podcasts. And um, once you understand that, it's amazing how many men all of a sudden will just take a deep breath when I explain that to them because. They've been struggling against the societal pressures of what having a mental health injury looks like, right? You go to talk therapy, you take your meds, you get better, you walk it off. <laughs> yeah, because that works great. <laughs> I know, right? And that's exactly it. How is that working for you? Because it's not, because that's not the problem. And I'm actually always impressed at how many people are very responsive when I explain to them why I think these injuries are soul injuries and how that affects us and how we heal it. So the next level of programming is, is going to be a deeper dive into working with the horses, working with ourselves. And what does that look like? Because truly healing is a psycho-spiritual event, right? So I think it'll just be a deeper dive into getting to know yourself because once you start creating that space, you can actually start, because I view trauma like weeds in a lawn and Every weed, uh, you know, on the surface of the lawn has a deep root that goes super deep. And, and most of us aren't even aware of all the weeds. Most of us aren't even aware of how deep the roots go. And a lot of it is stored in the subconscious and unconscious. And so when you start creating space and you start digging these things up, all of a sudden these weeds show up and you're like, oh, my God, where on earth did that come from? But if you're given the space and the help to start really digging into those roots, you can go really deep and pull them out. But you need someone to help. You need to be in a space where you can expose it. Because that's the problem for a lot of people is, how do I access the things that I'm storing in my unconscious and subconscious as trauma? Like, those are the blocks that you're perceiving. These things are stored away where you can't see them. They're not in your conscious mind. You just know that they're a blockage for you and you can't move past it to the next step of your healing. And so if you have somebody there with a shovel with you, you know, sort of digging up the dirt and exposing, bringing these things to the light, then you can start doing the deep dive down these roots and really pull the weeds out so that they're, they're gone. For, but, for, for the people that, uh, cause I've heard this and I know you've heard this, just let sleeping dogs lie. Don't poke the bear. Don't kick over that rock. Um, how, <laughs> I know what I'd say to these people, but what would you say to people when they, when they, um, they believe they should just not disturb the ground? The ground is disturbed. <laughs> That's right. The ground is disturbed. You can pretend that you didn't just build your house on a, on a fault line, on a, you know, on an earthquake fault line. You can go ahead and convince yourself, well, I built a really great house. I spent a lot of money on engineering and the walls are solid and the frame is great and the roof is awesome, but you still built it on a fault line. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how great you built your house. There's still a crack in the earth. And as soon as that hits, your whole house is destroyed. So you can pretend 
<laughs> that it's as simple as letting sleeping dogs lie, but you, you're building a house on a fault line is what you're doing. Those, your body will store trauma until it makes you so uncomfortable in your life that you are willing to deal with it. Yeah. And those, do- not, those dogs aren't sleeping. They're not sleeping. They're not sleeping. Right? It's, it's they're not really mess. sleeping. Yeah. They're, no, just, it's like having apps on your phone in the background. You know, it's yeah. like, well, I don't have that app open. Oh, it's open. Oh, it's open. <laughs> just because it's not part of your conscious awareness does not mean it's not running in the background. Yeah. You cannot, you cannot outrun your trauma and it will no. show up in ways that, and, and the, the universe has a funny way of escalating, right? It will keep turning the temperature up on you <clears throat> until eventually one day you wake up with a diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. It'll keep saying, it is saying, look at me, address yeah. me, look at me, address me. And it's saying it louder and louder mm-hmm. and louder. And the more you ignore it, um, the worse it gets yeah. and the louder it gets. Yep. Until you have like, um, you know, a detrimental injury until you lose everything. Like, Jesus, I, I had to lose everything. My entire life was in ashes before I finally went, okay. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> yeah, my house was foreclosed on. I was bankrupt. Uh, got kicked out of the house. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the whole nine yards. Life was in yep. ashes. And I still didn't think that it was me. Ah. Uh. Yeah, I uh, when I when my house went into foreclosure and I managed to save it and I thought, okay, I got to sell this thing, and it was the physical representation to me of the very little bit of success that I actually felt like I had in my life. Right? Well, at least I own a house. The whole rest of it is in shambles. I'm a, I'm an alcoholic. I'm divorced. Uh, I'm not functioning. I'm chronically suicidal. But you know, at least I own a house. <laughs> that was the. <laughs> That was the final straw for me when I realized that if I don't sell it, it's going to, someone else is going to take it from me. Yeah. And, uh, God, selling my house was a big, that was a huge, I really had to sit with my shame on that one. I really had to sit with my shame around money, around what it looks like to other people. And the the house and the shame, none of that was you. That was all your ego. It was all my ego and all the things that other people had, had given me that said, you know, you're not. You're not a, it's funny how we equate financial success with human character. If you are financially struggling, it's because you're bad with money. It's because you lack character. It's because you're a bad person. Well, I'm sorry, but I was on disability at 60% of my paycheck. And then I got divorced and from a two income household. And yes, I should have sold my house initially, but I had a really strong emotional attachment to it. Yeah. So I wasn't bad with money on top of the fact that we get paid shit as paramedics. So I was like, I wasn't bad with money. I just didn't have any. And that was the problem, you know, but people were like, well, maybe if you just worked harder, I'm working six days a week with one day off, you know, well, you're a bad person. Like I actually had friends criticize me behind my back. Well, they weren't friends, were they? No. And they're not friends of mine. No. No. But it's amazing how we judge and shame each other for those things too. And I just wanted to say, like, I'm barely alive right now. I am suicidal every fucking day and you're judging me because I have to sell my house. And, you know, anyways, I've moved past that because that's no longer who I am. And I don't identify with owning things as a barometer of my character. You know what I mean? As a measure of how good of a person I am. Well, people uh, love to not be empathetic and then tell the world how empathetic that they are. 
Uh-huh. Oh, and trust me, the people that judge me are the first to get on their little soapbox on social media when something's going on. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, when I lost everything, the house um, bankrupt. And and I fell from a fairly good height. Like I was making dough, man. Uh-huh. I had numerous properties uh, or uh, or shares in numerous properties. And um, like I was doing good, but uh-huh. I couldn't keep it up. And when I burnt out and the, and the house came crumbling down, um, and my real estate business, which was doing really well. And then it went into the toilet because I just could not carry the weight anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one fellow going, well, when I went through divorce, uh, didn't affect my real estate business. Well, well, you're a robot. So good luck. <laughs> you know? Also, did he have a military career behind him when that happened? <laughs> did he right. have a healthy childhood before that? Like there's so many factors. Yeah. You're not right? me. <laughs> No, you're not me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did it. Well, good for you. So what are you mm-hmm. saying? I'm weak. You're strong. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, hero. <laughs> That's exactly what they're saying to us. And it's so incredibly invalidating because they haven't had to do the things that we've had to do. Yeah. And even if they did, um, if we're defending, justifying, and explaining, which I heard you do earlier with the house, right? You're still defending, justifying, and explaining. Exactly. Which means you're, you're still protecting your ego. Yeah, there's still a part of you that's holding on to that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the, um, actually, of all the places, when I was a sales trainer is where I learned about that. If you are defending, justifying, or explaining, you are in the weak position. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you don't have to. Yeah, because it know, just is. It just is. That, that's how yeah. it is. I'm doing my best, and I don't have to explain it to anybody. And I'll quickly find out, if somebody's asking me to explain it to them, you're not my friend. You're an no. asshole. You know, what shocked me was how many people would ask me personal questions. Well, why are you selling your house? How about it's none of your damn business? (laughs) The amount of people that would ask me deeply personal questions or give me unsolicited advice was shocking. Yeah. Well, do you have roommates? Well, of course I have roommates. You know what I mean? And I just, I finally got to the point where I was like, I don't even want to answer questions anymore. I don't want to tell people what's going on in my life because it just gives them the opportunity to judge me. Yeah. And then, of course, you get to the point where you don't care anymore and you're like, yeah, whatever, right? But at that point, I did care. I was hurt when people judged me for it. It's so funny when people ask questions like that without having any idea. I mean, if they knew better, they'd do better. They don't even know that they're asking a deeply personal question. No. Uh, <laughs> Army veterans, we get all the time, have you ever killed anybody? An incredibly mm. personal question. Um, and one of my friends who, he was a door gunner. In Afghanistan. So mm. the, an, the the real answer is, yeah, dozens yes. and dozens. Um, and it's not cool. And it's nothing to brag about. It's, it's mm. a horrible burden to carry. But his answer to the person was, does your wife like it from behind? That's, that's, that's what he said to her, to, to the person. Well played. Right? Because it's none of your fucking wow. business. That's the oh. level. But it put, it's like, what are you doing? Why would you ask me something like that? Well, here's the mirror. I'm making you look into it. Because that's exactly. what you're asking me. Yeah. That's what you're asking me. It, this is the level of how personal this is. Yeah. Yeah, I have, uh, I'll be honest, I, there was a point in my, my healing or not healing when I was still injured and people would ask me, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And you know, we'd, we'd be at a house party or something, just a bunch of ignorant normals. Oh, the normies. 
so here's the thing. At that point, you know, I've got a bunch of people that think they know about homelessness and they think they know about on and on and on, right? They're, yeah. they're so great. None of them actually volunteer at a homeless shelter. None of them have any idea what's happening on the street. Um, you know, but they asked me, what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And so I was like, you know what? I've had enough of this party. I think I, I'm ready to go home. And I knew my answer would just. They don't want, the they think they want the answer, but they don't want the answer. So I told him the answer. Oh. And he just looked at me and he goes, why the hell would you tell me that? And I said, why the hell would you ask me that question, you dipshit? And he's like, well, that's awful. I don't, right, you know, and I'm like, good. I hope your night is ruined. I really hope it is. I hope you go home now. Bye. And I would clear a whole room because I just, you know, you get to the point where you're like, I don't care. I don't like any of these people anyways. They're not my friends. I'm here at a house party. I don't know any of these idiots, you know, and you just clear a whole room. And then I remember my boyfriend at the time was just like, you just can't help yourself. Hey. And I was like, they shouldn't be asking me those questions. Yeah. If you don't know what the inside of somebody's skull looks like or what brains on a wall looks like, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. And no, exactly. You don't want me to describe what that looks like and feels like. But you know what? Hey, if you need to learn a lesson the painful way, I'm happy to help you with that. Yeah, I have. I was at a um, block party, and I did the same thing that you did. I uh, answered the question. So, what's war like? But <laughs> I answered it correctly, and the look on his—he wished to God he had never asked. And. Um, uh, like it was a horrific response because it's a horrific answer. It is a horrific answer. You know, because it's a, a horrific experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. People don't want to know, so don't ask. No, exactly. Mind you think your you you think you want to know, but uh, I said to my father once, and uh, it's the one time and you know, one or once or twice in our entire relationship that I got a gem of wisdom out of the guy. But uh, I said, one said to him, Dad, you have no idea what I have seen and been through. And he goes, mm-hmm. nor should I. That's your job. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why it is. That is why we do what we do, Jess, so that others don't yeah. have to. We, that's a huge part of it. We know so that they don't have to know. We carry it exactly so that it. they don't have to carry it. We carry around the huge burden of the things we've seen and experienced because that's that's the gift that we're giving people is that they don't have to experience it. We do it for them. And even when I have patients come up to me afterwards and they want to know, like, you know, they were in a horrific car accident and they want to know what I found and what I saw. And I'm like, nope, that's a burden that I'm going to carry for you. That's part of the exchange that I agreed to unknowingly when I chose to become a paramedic was that I agreed to witness these things on your behalf so that you don't have to. So if you really want to know what you looked like and what it was like, I can tell you, but there's a reason you don't remember. So why don't you just consider this a gift? You've got enough to heal from right now. And there's no way for us to really describe it anyway, because I could try to describe it. I could try to describe what I've seen at a landfill site in a war zone. I could Mm -hmm. try to describe it, even poetically. Yeah. But you can't describe a smell. No. You it's can't so describe a taste. Visceral. Yeah, it's they would they would get like one out of like one yeah. percent of, of the impression of what it actually was, and that one percent will still make them cringe and wish that they had never asked. Yeah, 
because it's it's such a visceral experience. The ringing in your ears, oh. the telling yourself that everything's going to be like I could go on and on and on. It's such a visceral experience that you just have no idea unless you've experienced it yourself. Because it affects your soul. Everything. It, it yeah. so deeply affects your soul. It's amazing. I, I would be so curious to see. There's so much physiological damage when you walk into a situation where that mammalian, or not the mammalian, but the the caveman part of your brain is screaming at you to run, like the part that would has kept us alive all of these thousands of years of humanity, you know, um, when you override that time and time and time again, that screaming part of your brain that says, get the fuck out of here. There's people dead in here. Save yourself. And we override it every single day that we are in these jobs, right? The healthy, normal thing would be to do is to turn around and go, fuck no, I am not going anywhere near this because I'll die. But the selection process for whether it's a paramedic or soldier is not much different. If you can't bring it, when really the sensible thing is to get the hell out of there and you're charging forward anyway, if you can't do that, you don't have the job. You're out. No. Exactly. But the physiological consequences of that, we never, ever, ever explore. What are the costs to my soul and to my body every time I override that, that uh, amygdala? I think the most um, susceptible personality types, people think, oh, you know, you're weak, so you're more susceptible. Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, I always use the expression of getting your legs blown off by a landmine. Oh, you just had weak shins. Like, no yeah, no right? douchebag would ever say that, no. uh, you know, but it's it, it's the same <laughs> thing. Like, But there are personality types that I think that are more susceptible. I'd like your um, uh, input, if you, if you agree or disagree or otherwise. Yeah. Um, my observations have been of people that uh, are have a strong creative side to them are more susceptible to the injury because it, it has a bigger impact on them because they're able to see more than just the thing. They're able to see the con- the big picture, the consequences of the thing and are able to uh, connect to it emotionally and uh-huh. really understand the size. So something that looks like a three out of a 10 to somebody who has no creative talent whatsoever looks like a 12 out of 10 to somebody who is highly creative like yourself mm-hmm. like myself uh, mm-hmm. what do you think yeah and i think you know both of us are very empathic right and that's a gift that's a huge gift to be able to read a room to be able to sense people's energies to be able to understand the all of these things that are unsaid and not visual right oh, these and, are these and are a curse gifts. what's that yeah it's and a curse. Yeah, it's a curse in our professions because we have to deaden those parts of ourselves in order to survive the job. And what that does is it actually starts to kill off your soul. Like your soul dies doing these jobs. But I do think you're right because you, you know, especially with empaths, right? You can feel everything the other person is going through. You can feel their physical pain. You can feel their emotional pain. You can anticipate what their family is going to feel like, like, you, so you go through all of these emotions with them while you're trying to stay focused on what you're doing. And that absolutely comes at a cost. And, uh, and I think the other group of people that are very susceptible are people with childhood trauma, childhood adverse events. I think they are very susceptible to getting PTSD mm-hmm. in these professions. And unfortunately, 
because of their childhood trauma, they do get drawn to these helper professions where they can become the person they needed in their childhood. And um, Well, because people either will emulate the abuse and become the abuser, or they yeah. will become or try to become the hero so that other people don't have to suffer what they suffered. Exactly. Or that they don't have to suffer anymore because they've become their own hero. They've become their own, the person that protects themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people aren't even aware of that, that that's why they've chosen their professions. But when you've had a traumatic childhood, no one's taught you how to emotionally regulate. No. No one's taught you how to sit with your emotions. No one's given you the space or the you know, uh, the ability to, to, to even co-regulate, right? And your entire sense of self is so warped because of childhood trauma that you don't even really know who you are. So, so many of the skill sets that you would need to, to increase your resiliency in these, in these professions, you weren't even given as a child. So you walk into these professions at a huge deficit. Especially in the, se- in the 70s and 80s, as a kid, you're given a box. Fit in the box yeah. or be punished. So when you're feeling your feelings, you don't fit in the box. So you'd be punished for just being yourself. You'd be punished just for being you, which is having just being a human being, there would be a punishment. Yeah. And you would be ignored and you'd be punished, right? That was your punishment for having an emotional reaction to something rather than somebody actually sitting with you and teaching you how to regulate yourself. So when you become an adult and you experience these intense emotions because of our jobs, you punish yourself. We replay our childhoods. We punish ourselves for feeling angry and for feeling afraid and for feeling shame. We punish ourselves every single time. And that just leads to, to more injury. It's a snake eating its tail. It's a horrible cycle. And, um, you know, and I think childhood trauma really leaves us wide open to PTSD. Well, it's because the, the cup is already pre-filled, Right. Uh, by the time I went into, a, oh yeah, by the time I was in a war zone, my cup is already three quarters full. And I think mm-hmm. a healthy cup is about a third, you know, from yeah. my observations. I think like, is everybody's got a story. Everybody has a bumpy road, everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but normal lives, the normies, their cups are about a third full. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we're going into these professions like paramedicine, uh, any of the first responder professions. Place is a big one. Which? Policing is a big one where yeah. you see a lot of people with childhood trauma. Just the other day, I um, uh, threw on my uh, CrossFit vest, vest, which feels a lot like a flak vest. And it, it just switches your brain. Like I'm, my body language is different. The hypervigilance is different. Like everything is different. And it gave me the insight of, oh, yeah, this is why it's hard to switch gears, you know, um, to not bring it home even um and that's the same in any profession my my wife is a school principal so as uh, she switched on you know uh she's got 40 teachers uh, and 500 kids and it, like it's a lot so when she comes mm-hmm. home it's still on and i kind of got to back off <laughs> wait <laughs> wait till those gears get switched you know but um uh, w- when that you're coming from a survival place of violence yeah. and uh threat and, and and everything else switching that off is even harder and it's also more critical that you can switch it off well and that's the thing is you actually live that way so you've never switched it off you've yeah. always been in fight or flight and survival mode so when you get into these professions you're already at such a deficit 
because it's all you know, but you, it's also part of why you think you'll be good at it. Like, oh man, I'm still alive after everything I've been through. This will be no problem. That's such a farce, right? Because you just don't even know what you don't know. So you walk in at a total deficit because you're already in survival mode. So it's not even like you can shift into it to survive the profession. You're already there, right? You're already grinding your gears and you've already got your foot on the gas and your foot on the brake revving the engine at that point. It's just, it's, it's just a downhill disaster from there. Now, in addition to having P-seat, Prairie, Squ- Prairie Skies Equine Assisted Therapy, uh, you've now moved into a new world in, in the world of ketamine therapy. So uh-huh. uh, you've been doing this for a little while now. And uh, would you call yourself a shaman or a facilitator or something in between? Yeah, I think a shaman is something that you have to earn over a long period of time. <laughs> and that's a title someone else gives you. Okay. You, yeah. I have some thoughts about that. Um, I would call myself a facilitator. I think that's probably the right term for that. I just help facilitate people healing themselves. They're the ones that do the work. I just facilitate the space and the medicine and the, you know, a little bit of guidance here and there, a little bit of reflection, hold a mirror up for them. But yeah, I think facilitator is a good way to put it. Now, different roads, same path whether it, uh, through, through the ketamine or any psychedelic, it's a road of self-discovery and mm-hmm. aha moments um, that just rewire how you view things, as yeah. is equine therapy. Um, where do you see that they are similar? Where, where are they the most similar, and where are they um, not similar at all? Um, I think... The way that they're not similar is that when you're working with horses, you're having an external interaction with another living being, and they're giving you that bio, that feedback. Within the psychedelic space, it's a very internal experience. It's a very private, internal experience. There's no external aspect to it for most people. So I think that's really the big difference is one is a relationship with another living being, and one is the relationship with yourself. Um, the way that they're the same is they really have this similar effect on the brain. Psychedelics and horses have a very similar effect on the brain to each other. It's almost the exact same thing. It's just with psychedelics, it's to a much greater degree because you're actually putting people into a non-ordinary state of consciousness. So that's the biggest difference. Well, we're about at time, my friend. How do people get a hold of you? Um... They can get a hold of me through Prairie Sky if they want or on social media, Jessica Vanderhoek. Um, Prairie Sky's website is www.pseat.ca, P-S-E-A-T. And um, <clears throat> we have a big plan for the future. Um, we would love to be able to build a healing center, which would be a world-class mental health injury, mental health trauma facility to help people get their lives back and that would incorporate psychedelics. It would incorporate the horses. Um, it would be land-based healing. And so that's sort of the next big push for me in my life is to create this essentially one-stop shop of, of mental health for people where there's really high quality services provided for people so that you don't have to go to multiple locations and multiple visits that you can come in and, and do your, your weekly appointments or, 
you know, fly in for the month and do an intense treatment, but that people actually get the help that they really need. Because I think that's one of the biggest issues is people accessing the things that actually work. We're just starting to have an understanding of how very ineffective the current mental health system is. And um, I think part of my mission on this, this planet is to help people become aware that there's so much more available to you in the form of treatment than what you're being led to believe. So how do we make that accessible to people and how do we do so in an effective way? So that's, that's my next big push is to create this beautiful healing center. Well, I love it. And hopefully I can be a part of that to help you build that. Absolutely. I do got a pretty big network. So maybe I can, I know people that know people. Right. (laughs) I love it. All right, sister, you stay on the line and Jess, so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, hang on. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their horses. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Today's episode is sponsored by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated, globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com. Safe by choice, not by chance, for all of your safety needs. <laughs>